Well, I was in Denver last Saturday morning, um, and it had me thinking about how rules and laws and social conventions, cultural conventions, and all of that work, how they function, what they mean for us, you know, when they work and when they don't. And I happened to be in Denver uh, after a church planners conference. It's the national conference for our, uh, for our province, the Anglican Church in North America. So I was there. My flight was leaving early afternoon. I had some time that morning to kill. So I went down to what they call the 16th Street Mall. It's not a mall like Haywood, but more like just a plaza and some shops and what have you. So I went down to the Central Business District. I parked, found, found easy parking, and uh, and walked. I had to walk several blocks to get to the 16th Street uh, Mall. And it was, I wanted to get some souvenirs for the kids and all that. I was in a little bit of a hurry, you know, because whenever you're flying, it doesn't matter what time it is, you're just like, if something might go wrong, you're just always a little bit anxious. So I'm walking um, probably three or four blocks, and I get to the first crosswalk, and there are maybe five or six people there with me. And um, we're standing there, and listen, this is a Saturday morning. Nobody's in downtown Denver. There are no cars. The only people that are there are some pedestrians who had paid for parking and are walking in. And we're standing at this crosswalk, and there are five or six of us, and there's the, the orange hand telling us to stop. No cars. So we all stood there obediently <laughs> and waited. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. I'm getting coached even as I preach. Nice. Um, so we all stand there, and the light turns to the little, you know, monochromatic walking man, and we're like, okay, now we can go, so we walk. We get to the next one. No cars. The five or six of us join a gaggle of about five or six others, and we're standing there, and it's like we're waiting for the hand to change. No cars. I'm like, okay, I can play ball. Getting a little churning in here. Some of you are just thinking, what's the problem? That's the rule, Seth. You just do what the light says. And I'm going, there are no cars. The law is meaningless right now. And Ashley knows this sort of line of argument and thinking well. Because here's the thing. There are people who are rule followers and rule acknowledgers. And I'm more on the end of the rule acknowledger. I recognize the need for a rule in certain circumstances, but not always. There are times when the rule becomes arbitrary and meaningless, right? So by the time we got to the third crosswalk... 15, 20 of us who were moving into downtown Denver, we're all going to the plaza, and we're standing there staring at the orange hand. And I'm honestly, I'm about to come unglued. <laughs> there are no cars. And in Greenville, uh, let's just be honest, in Greenville, we just go. We just like, I mean, we, you know, we're like, okay, thanks for the advice. I mean, some of you don't. Some of you are shaking your head, no, we don't go. <laughs> but Denver, man, nobody goes. And I'm looking around for my people, and none of my people are in Denver. So, rules, right? And I was thinking, man, this rule is completely arbitrary when there are no cars. It's helpful when there are cars. It's helpful when, you know, you need the efficiency of a da- busy downtown. This rule is ridiculous right now. And I'm, I'm living into my rule acknowledger uh, reality right there. And it, but, it, you know, it had me thinking about this. Jesus broke a lot of rules. And now some of that might be cringy for you. Others of you are like, yes, and he broke all the right ones. And he kept all the right ones. But he did. He broke many rules. Why? Because I think Jesus, you know, he showed up and he found out that a lot of these rules were fundamentally unhelpful. They might have seemed helpful at the time, but a lot of it was actually even some of their social conventions. There were just things that were going on 
within the way in which that Israel became to, uh, began to understand their ceremonial and their cultural reality, their life, and what it meant to be the nation, what it meant to live in imp- under an empire, all of these things. So they're leaning into this, all the pharisaical stuff. Jesus broke Sabbath laws. He broke ceremonial laws, washing laws. He, he struck out three times by talking to a Samaritan woman with a bad reputation. Shouldn't have done that. In fact, a lot of the stuff Jesus did were punishable offenses. He, he dined with sinners, right? He touched lepers and became unclean. Jesus broke some rules. I'm not saying that Jesus broke rules for, uh, just because he was a rule breaker, that they were, they were arbitrary in his mind. Jesus, the kingdom that Jesus was bringing had to confront some of the conventions and realities of the day. So what we get in, this, um, in, in Luke 14 today is a confrontation of Jesus with a social convention that actually had some rules and laws and various things that went along with it. When Jesus says... What? In verse 25, he says, it, it says, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. And so obviously something's going on in Jesus that he's got to address the fact that he's got lots of people following him, and do they understand what this actually means? And that's the question to us today. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How many of you, when you heard that, cringed a little bit? Be honest. Yes. I think a lot of us cringed when he said that, right? And so, what does he mean? This word hate, and let me, let me let you off the hook a little bit. This word hate does not mean what we, we mean very often when we, when we say we hate someone. We like, see them as a mortal enemy. We have awful feelings toward them. We think of them poorly, really, really badly. This word hate is actually a Hebraicism. The word is miseo. And it just, it's, a, it's a relational word. It, it's, it's one thing relating to another. It's you love something else less. Let me give you a silly example. So in the world of Doritos, if you like Cool Ranch, then you miseo nacho cheese, right? You like nacho cheese, you miseo. So you like, love it less. So hate can be sort of on a range of like, but you, you miseo that. You love it less. Some of you don't like Doritos. I forgive you at all. You don't like either of them. That's okay. But this is kind of what it's after, although it's a much more serious application of miseo right here. You are preferring one thing, and so over the other. So to miseo something is the opposite of preferring it. Does that make sense? But why? Why are they to miseo their families? Let's talk about one other thing that he says here that's challenging, and then we'll come back to that. Let's read on in verse 27. He says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So unless you miseo your family, and unless you carry your own cross, you cannot be my disciple. These are both kind of hard things to hear. What does he mean when he says your own cross? And now this is not him just simply saying, following me is going to mean suffering, so I want you to take up suffering. It's not suffering for its own sake. This is not asceticism that people who follow Jesus need to seek out suffering or just expect that life itself is going to be suffering. That's not what he's saying. He's also not saying that life following me is going to be hard because it's going to be a whole bunch of rules that you're going to need to keep now. That's not what it is either. What the cross fundamentally symbolizes is this. You're going to have to die to yourself to follow me. You're going to have to die to yourself to follow me. You cannot be Lord and follow me. And guess what? Your family can't either. 
And then he goes on in verse 33 to say, unless you renounce everything. And I'll talk to you about what, what he means there in just a second. But unless you renounce everything, you cannot follow. Nothing else can be Lord and for you to follow me. It's, but here's the thing, guys. It's so hard for other things to not be Lord's. It's so hard for us, for me, to not be the Lord of my life. You wonder maybe even why we bow at times when you notice when we say the Lord Jesus, and we do this when we come in also at the cross. That's not something you have to do, but it's not just sort of ceremonial, or it's not something that we're, we're, we're just you know, trying to be ornate or something like that, or really formal. That is actually, for me, it's a bodily prayer to say Jesus is Lord and not me today, because I'm going to be standing up here with a microphone on, and you're going to be listening to me. And there might be a temptation in my mind to think, hey, Village Church is going really great. Seth Cain is Lord. Right? We do this. It's hard not to be our own Lord, so we take up the cross. That's where it begins. It's hard for people and for possessions and things to not be Lord in our lives. And this was something that, that Thomas Cranmer, who was, he was the, the father of the English Reformation, you may know, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he talked about this sort of, um, middle ages term called concupiscence and that sound we don't use that word at all anymore but it was basically the, the man the way in which it was kind of like a, the spiritual anthropology like the way in which we go about living our lives what goes on in us and the way our loves and our desires and our mind our will works itself out and so one of the scholar, a Cranmer scholar, um, who's been, you know, he's actually been canon theologian to our diocese, a guy named Ashley Knoll. He's an incredible scholar. And he, he talked about that, um, that basically Cranmer's view was this. What the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. That's what he meant by concupiscence. Let me say it again. What the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. So we have this circular loop of making ourselves or other things Lord. Like we justify, we have desire, it's legitimate desire, we want things, our will chooses it, and then we have a tendency to do the end run and make sure that that's right and that's good, and we protect ourselves. We protect our lordship, little, little tiny thrones in our lives, right, each day. Very often it comes through the difficulty we face, self-protection. So does this make sense? We become our own lords. Jesus is going after this and all the things that might become our lords that would keep us from following him. He's not saying that he doesn't want us to follow him. What he is saying that it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to follow him faithfully if we keep erecting other lords, in particular if we are our own. You cannot be my disciple. In other words, it doesn't work for us to erect ourselves as the Lord. So he gives these two examples quickly of counting the cost. Like he wants us to think about this, like what it means to follow him. And he gives these two examples, one of building a tower and one of a king going to war, like a builder and a king, let's just say. And so verse 28 says this, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So, there's a little bit of tapping into, he's making his audience feel a certain way. And they're like, oh my gosh, can you imagine in front of God and everybody, you, you set out and you built this foundation, everybody's like, oh, what you building, man? 
and you don't, you, your plans are bad, you don't have the materials, it just sits there, this foundation that you couldn't build. And there's just, it's this source of shame, and Jesus is kind of appealing to this, and he's pointing out this man was unwise, because what did he do? He sold it short, right? He didn't really understand what, everything that was going to go into in front of everyone, what was going to go into building this tower. He kind of thought too little of it. And so he proceeded without a view of reality. Let's put it that way. This is going to take more than you will think. There's going to be a cost. It's in verse 31. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now, this story makes us feel a little differently, doesn't it? It's like, okay, this guy, he did, the, he did a good thing. So Jesus took the one where it's like cringy, and then the other one's like, oh, good. Oh, good. He counted the cost like he thought about it. This king knows he's outmatched, so he know, he's walked all the way around the thing. He's taken a full inventory of what's going on. And he is compromising glory, like the potential of winning the victory for what? For prudence and for peace. There's a deep wisdom in what he's done in thinking, how is this going to play out? Now, if you're an Israelite, you might be going, but we won lots of wars with half of the people, or just a few people, and we overthrew all of them. So Jesus is being a little subversive right here, right? He's saying, but this man is, is looking at the whole situation and doing the most prudent and wise thing. Instead of seeking the glory that he might be after, he's trying to think how to save lives. He's really mindful of what's at stake here. There's a lot in, going on in this story. You could preach a whole sermon on that one story. But what Jesus is saying is it's going to take serious consideration for them and for us to grasp the reality of following Jesus. And let me make sure you understand this. This isn't about a one-time thing where we go, oh yeah, I counted the cost. Yep, I got it. And I followed Jesus and I left everything and I did all that stuff. This is happening every day in our hearts. This is dynamic reality. This is what we're doing here today on Sunday morning is we are continuing to make Jesus Lord because the truth is we're, we're the default lords. We're, we show up pretty much everywhere, even the humblest among us, still we have an inordinate ability to put ourselves at the center of everything. And Jesus says, take up your cross. And we have an inordinate ability to put even some other people or issues or things that, that feel, they, they just wrangle us continually and we put those things right at the, at the fore and they rule our lives. And they are our lords. And Jesus is saying none of it can do that. It's going to take serious consideration if we're going to grasp the reality of following Jesus. And then he repeats himself in verse 33. He says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's not going to work unless this becomes the way in which we follow Jesus, pursue Jesus. That word in verse 33 for renounce is apotasomai. And it's a word picture. It's an interesting thing. It basically is, put that over there and say goodbye to it. Put it over there, say adieu, and turn a walk. It looks like repentance, doesn't it? Put it over there and walk away. Say goodbye. And it made me think about Hebrews 11, 14 through 16. We've been in Hebrews, and these, this, this great cloud of witnesses are fathers and mothers of the faith, and he says this in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But what did they do? Apatasomai. Put it over there and said goodbye to that. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So this is the life we're living. On repeat, on rhythm, together. Right? We're leaving our lords to follow Jesus. Every day, sometimes every moment. Because what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. None of us are exempt from that reality. And so, what does this mean for us? What is it, what, where do we take away? You know, Jesus, the bottom line is that Jesus is inviting us to shed. He's even inviting us and inviting us to his lordship to shed all the old, the rules, the religious things. He's not giving us a new set of rules and laws and, you know, a, a religion to follow, law-keeping morality. He's giving us himself. And what does it mean to have him as Lord more than just, well, I'm going to follow his new sets of rules and all of that. That's what I want you to make sure you don't hear me say. We have a better Lord who we want to want, who has done what? He's made it possible to follow, to follow him because of the manner in which he has followed all the right rules. Done all the best things. He has suffered to remove the stain, the curse of sin. He has justified us. So we no longer relate to God by our failure and mistakes, nor how great we are at keeping law. We now relate to God because of the, of the lordship of Jesus, of what he has provided. When we say Jesus is Lord, we don't just mean he's king and we're going to give our attention to him. We mean he has provided sovereignly for everything we need. He has reconciled us to God as sons and daughters. He's called us to make him our Lord in all that he provides so the question really comes to this, what do, we, what do we prefer? What's, what's going on right now in us? What's the Lord in us? Right? What, what do we renounce? I think this is what the Lord wants to bring us um, to think about when we come together. Why do we have our quiet time? Is it to get in our spiritual vitamins and all of that, right? The, the Bible, all of that's good. But it's to actually reflect on what's got me what am i following how am i thinking of myself or others and other pressures what keeps us conflicted in our following jesus what keeps us hesitant could we rightly say that it's ruling or leading us this is what we're here to find out together continually in the presence of jesus the loving lord who wants better for us than we tend to want for ourselves and I'll leave you with these, this thought. When it comes to building buildings and counting the costs, when it comes to going to war and understanding what's at stake, just think about this. Jesus is the perfect building builder, tower builder, temple builder. He's the cornerstone to the building. Listen to what First Peter says. This is really interesting. 
He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus is building this thing. Jesus is the perfect cost-counting tower builder, and we are a part of what he is doing. Jesus is also the perfect king who counted the cost of going to war to win peace, and what did he do? Call it a compromise, call it whatever you want. The bottom line is the king gave himself for us to overthrow the powers of hell and of death, to give to us the kingdom, to give to us the safety and the assurance of his presence and his love for us. This is what he's done. So the question just comes to this. It's not one we answer finally and and fully in any given day, but it's one we have to answer every day, and we have to answer together. Do we want Jesus as Lord? And what else is trying to be? I guarantee you it's you, and it's me. And it's probably a whole bunch of other things too. So when you come and you open your hands today, I want to just ask you to imagine that you're releasing the lordship of your own life and receiving again the self-giving, the peace-winning lordship of Jesus. Because that's what it is. You believe it. Lord, help us to believe it and trust you. You are a good Lord. We need your ways. We confess that um, a lot of our lordship has gotten us a lot of places. It's worked out in a lot of ways, but it will not sustain us, not ultimately. So we ask for everything that you have for us and nothing less. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.